Hi everybody, just a quick heads up. We're going to stray from the planned order of just sustainability episodes. Because we need to do some re-recording, the remainder of Shane Epting's episodes are going to be posted on a future date. But I didn't want to keep you all waiting any longer, so I'm going to share with you the conversation that I had with Marceline Mosher. Well, just for the record, my cats could pester me at any moment. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, that is a common theme, I think, in this podcast. People's pets uh, wandering uh, like in and then like getting uh, into the recordings. Yeah, I mean, that's perfectly fine. Uh, these are meant to be just sort of, you know, natural conversations. So, uh, oh, cool. Yeah. Sometimes natural conversations catch random things in them, so. It's fine. Yeah, that's, that's true. All kinds of weird things happen in the course of a normal and, you know, everyday conversation. <laughs> Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to season four of Just Sustainability. In this episode of Just Sustainability, I have the honor of introducing you to Marceline Mosher. Marceline teaches at Hamlin University and is a doctoral student in communication studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. She's contributed a bunch of really terrific scholarship critically examining the dominant narratives about the relationship between nature, well-being, technology, and power. Those are all topics near and dear to my heart and relevant to most of the conversations that have been featured on this podcast. So without further ado, let's listen to how Marceline introduces herself. Who is Marceline uh, Mosher in the, the words of Marceline Mosher, right? right other than the, the professional bio, uh, who are you? Oh, yes. I thought about this question and it's weirdly hard to answer, but um, <laughs> I decided to go with centering myself as a nature lover. So Marceline okay. Mosher, as a human, is a nature lover. I grew up in uh, rural Minnesota and I had okay. the luxury of growing up on water and near the St. Croix River. And so nature lover, okay. uh, first generation college student, child of poverty, uh, you know, rose from adversity. Um, super passionate academic, obviously research just mm -hmm. drives me. I love being curious about the world around me. Okay. Um, and then a fiercely independent, single, cisgendered, able-bodied white woman, a divorced step-parent, proud okay. cat lady, and like a whole bunch <laughs> of other cliches. But yeah, that's me. <laughs> I think proud cat lady. So as a nature lover, is there is there a, a particular sort of ecosystem or eco zone mm. that you have a uh, the greatest affinity for yes water everything water. to do with water but i am also a river gal so okay. um rivers in particular the saint croix river is where my passion for nature conservation and the role that the public have in protecting our most precious natural resources and um you know, the places and spaces we love. So yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a river gal through okay. and through. Yeah. So like, tell me a little about the St. Croix. Cause I'm not actually familiar with that river. So like, Oh, like how did, how well. did the St. Croix lead to your uh, love of uh, nature and the concern about protecting it? Well, I'm glad you asked because now I get to tell you about my favorite place. So okay. yeah. um, the St. Croix river borders Minnesota and Wisconsin. And it's, okay. I'm going to forget it's like 232 miles 
of pristine mm-hmm. uh, scenic national riverway. The headwaters are up north and I can't believe I'm going to forget, but you know, somewhere up north, Trigo, Wisconsin, something. And then okay. of course they meet at the Mississippi, I think in Hastings. So apologies okay. to all the people who actually know the answers <laughs> to these things. Um, but the St. Croix is special because it hasn't been at least the upper St. Croix. Um, mm-hmm. The upper St. Croix is from St- Stillwater, Minnesota and North. That's where I grew up enjoying okay. it. Um, Rush City, Minnesota, Pine City, Minnesota, Grantsburg, Wisconsin in that area. Mm-hmm. And um, its waters are among the cleanest in the nation. Uh, We have just like this beautiful bounty of uh, mussels and other um, invertebrates that filter water Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, get their food and sustenance and to survive. And they only survive in really clean water. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are endangered species that live and thrive in the St. Croix. The I'm always... Ma- uh, winged maple leaf perhaps whatever yeah. apologies <laughs> but you know there's these endangered amazing mussel species and yeah. um the river has protected status and it's you know got these root beer colored waters because of the tamarack tr- trees up north yeah. um and so people can sometimes think it's dirty but it's not it's just like tea water it's yeah. just dyed lots of tannins um, yeah, lots of tannins. Exactly. Yeah, it's a precious, beautiful place. And mm-hmm. I have spent countless hours paddling and swimming and enjoying the river. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's a river. No, I, I do think for many people um, who care a lot about the land, it's it's because of like they grew up somewhere uh, where they played outside a lot. And mm-hmm. outside reminds them of like... And a childhood or like is nostalgic or right is evocative of freedom or like you know mm. or like that 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 joy that marks childhood for those i guess for folks who's you know who had joyful childhoods yeah yeah it i mean my brothers and i we absolutely were outdoor wild feral children just you know out there and to think of home is to think of being outside, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, really well put. Yeah. Well, put. well so maybe I will use this as an opportunity to tie into talking a little bit about uh, what you do, right? Cause you mentioned that you think of yourself as a scholar and a researcher and passionate about that. And you work mm-hmm. in the areas of like communication and rhetoric. Uh, how do you, mm-hmm. how does that tie into right, your concern and love of nature? Right. So like when it comes to, communication and rhetoric and like sustainability, how do those things tie together for you? Like, how do you think about the relationship between those three things? Two things? I don't know. Um, Two or three things. They're deeply intertwined for me, right? Because I'm interested in the ways that um, we as, you know, humans, narrative creatures make meaning about ourselves and the world and our lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the intersection of the material world, right? Our natural environment and our socially constructed world where communication Mm -hmm. helps us make sense of the way we move through the world. Um, I think the environment is, you know, it's the most important, again, to me, it's the most important thing that we can look at communication um, with to understand how individuals uh, construct their ideas of nature 
Hmm. Uh, their relationship to nature, mm-hmm. the responsibility we have, the you know expectations we have, we commodify nature here in the U.S. in particular in the Western right. world at large. Um, and so, understanding the way that we socially construct what you know our natural environment is and what it means mm-hmm. um, in life and and our economic worlds and you know. Yeah. Business. Right. Uh, So, yeah. So I studied communication to help to understand those things so that we can, you know, push back on them and we can challenge them and we can um, try to reconstruct our understanding of nature outside of those values that are are woven that really commoditize and make nature, you know, a product, Mm -hmm. you know, water for water bottles and not for just general human survival type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Listening to her talk about her work, let me to ask Marceline about her thoughts about the dominant narratives of the United States about our relationship with the land. This led us to a conversation about the commodification of nature and our culture's tendency to only think about nature in terms of what it might do or provide for us. We then talked about how we might challenge such narratives and such framings of nature. I'm going to ask you a super vague and really open question because uh, I, love it. I just thought of something when you were talking, right? Cause like, I, I think often when we're, you know, so like, it, it sounds like what you're, you're talking about is the, right. Like how humans use narratives to shape the ways that we think about land and our, the way we conceptualize mm-hmm. land and our relationship with land. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I think it's often the case. It's, it's sort of easy when you're looking at someone of coming from a different culture to think about like how, they might conceptualize land, right? Because like, right. Mm-hmm. Cause often our own narratives, particularly ones as fundamental as like our narratives of, about our relationship with land are taken so much for granted that we don't even recognize. We tell oh. those stories that we have those narratives. Absolutely. So, so I'm just curious, like right in the context of like, say the United States, what do you think are the narratives and stories that like most shape the ways that, you know, people who are, born in and like kind of raised with sort of like, you know, the, the European American sort of, uh, worldview, like what, what's the, the narratives that shapes that kind of cultural perspectives, uh, Mm. conception Mm -hmm. of land and relationship to the land? Well, I mean, it kind of comes down to, for me, my, the way that I would boil down the discourse that surrounds nature in, uh, you know, let's just say news coverage, but, you know, just at large in the U S it would definitely be that commodity, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that we think of nature, um, as existing for human benefit, right. Even, right. even the way we conceptualize enjoying parks or being out in nature, we have to tell people being in nature is good for you. It's good for your mental health. It's good right. for your physical health, right. We have to try to, we make nature into something that benefits us humans, right, right. right? It's it's not something that has, you know, discourse-wise, it's not something that is just thought of as, um, you know, Mother Earth-type narratives where, you know, we are in service to the planet and right. that um, nature is one with us. Those types of narratives are largely absent from a more um modern u.s you know western type um, yeah set of discourses right like yeah. 
especially as we're looking at sustainability and climate change. It's hard to have these important conversations about how do we face this existential threat to humanity when what that means is a reduction of hyperconsumption, right? right? We can't solve climate change without a sustainability, uh, sustainable life, uh, lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to stop being hyper consumers of eventual trash. And um, it's really hard, even in the narratives and the ways that I study the way we, we communicate about climate change, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about more in a bit. Um, it's hard to have a conversation about climate change that is steeped in sustainability because even conversations about sustainability get, Mm -hmm. you know, funneled into our capitalistic mindset, right? Like, Oh, sustainability. Oh, you mean green technology. That means solar panels. We can produce those and we can sell those. Right. Um, Right. But at its core sustainability for, to me um, is about balance and we are out of balance and we need to consume far less, you know, yeah. Well, no. So almost the, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So this the the idea of when you're talking about the idea of commodification nature and thinking about like right nature in terms of its utility to humans, it just made me think right. Like even like I was, I was thinking about ecology, right? Like and then uh, when I was in grad school, I remember uh, I I was like when I doing my doctoral program, well, I had to take a, a, a an ecology class, and the instructor for that ecology class. Uh, once said like ecology really is the the study of trophic webs right like it's just a study of like mm-hmm. kind of energy flows um but then thinking about like how right ecology like the science of ecology tends to like describe humans and our relationship to the rest of the trophic web right we're we're seen as apex predators right we're sort of mm-hmm. on the the right like there's this hierarchical sort of idea where like you know, you start with like primary producers and then you go up as things eat other things and then here we are with like sharks and uh i don't know maybe bears and tigers yeah. and stuff mm-hmm. like who are on the top of this eating everything else um with that kind of like thinking about the fact that like we sort of get eaten by the like the smallest things right like we right like started over again right like uh, all of us get killed by little things and then eaten by little things. Well, mm-hmm. not all of us get mm-hmm. killed by them, but we all get eaten by them eventually, presumably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, right. Even sort of our science of studying our relationship with, you know, other species in the land is one that tends to somehow put us on the top where like all the energy just flows into us. Right. Like, yeah. I think people like, recognize that no it's like it's circular right like it's not like it flows to us and then just sort of like sits there like it it goes back but just Mm -hmm. sort of this idea of like the apex predator on top of the like right this this food chain um yeah that even that is like right like treats the rest of the world as like just sort of like a buffet for humans yeah and like the fact that we you know live within this natural system that sustains us right so it's it's circular but it's also a web and deeply you know connected to so so much to make that you know circular closed loop yeah even happen yeah yeah so yeah that's really i like that yeah yeah. wonderfully put that idea that science even tries to put us at the top of this line when yeah yeah, it is all circular 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe not in terms of like not conscient consciously, right? Like I, I think if you ask an ecologist, like oh, yeah. they would be like, Of course, no, 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 no. This is a metaphor. Like it doesn't really like yeah, this is a like a circular energy loop, right? Like and some mm-hmm. gets lost to like, you know, entropy or whatever, but like yeah, we're not actually on top of this. It's just a way, like, we, we talk about it to make it easier to understand. But then, right, like, just ha- right, that being the story that we tell, even mm-hmm. when we mm-hmm. realize it's not literally true. Um, yeah. And the framing of, like, right, apex predator and, like, primary and secondary, like, right, mm-hmm. like, you know, this idea of, like, things are hierarchical. Yeah. Oh, we love putting things in hierarchies, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, right, it, that t- definitely, like, illustrates that sort of uh right that sort of story that we tell where um right in some ways the land and other species are to some way are are in some way for us rather than are just Mm -hmm. things that are there and that we are in relationship with right where we're sort of embedded in the system and not like somehow being fed by the system or you know Mm -hmm. being supported by the system yeah exactly yeah. I like where your head's at. Yeah. And and so I guess then the natural question to ask is, so given that like that is sort of the, the common narrative and that narrative uh, sometimes interferes with uh, us thinking clearly about how to be more sustainable, how in your work, how do you go about challenging that narrative and like criticizing that narrative and then trying to, you know, uh, tell a different story about like, the way mm. that we relate to land? Um, so that's such a good question. Um, I Maybe I'll pause for where the most of the majority of my work goes, which sure. is um, ironically steeped in the understanding that climate change's impacts have on human health and well-being. You know, okay. So I am really focused on the impacts on, of humans, but that's because sure. I understand the nature of humans. Um, But one way to go back to the way that you framed your question, um, one way that I think that we can reclaim um, what nature's role is um, in our lives Mm. is through, I worked on a project in Northwestern Wisconsin uh, at a mental health residential treatment program, Northwest Passage. They had this special program in a new light Mm -hmm. and in a new light was all about, Treating folks, uh, young folks, kids aged six to, let's see, 18. Um, And the majority of the participants were 12 to 18. Um, But they treat these these young people that are experiencing mental illness, uh, debilitating mental illness. Mm -hmm. And they come into this residential setting. And one of the treatment modalities is to use nature-based expressive arts as a way to help ground students in something, you know, greater than themselves, uh, be paired with strong mentors to be able to use metaphor, to be able to uh, process how they're feeling. Um, And they do that through nature photography. And so these students would be out in nature and just kind of left to look at the world around them, you know, Mm -hmm. and they, would take photos and they had a lot of really unique prompts that guided them through the process of photography and, you know, reflection mm-hmm. um, because the two things were paired. And then they would write about their experiences. They'd take these beautiful photos and then they would write about, you know, nature and its role that the, it has in 
our human existence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that not only is that experience amazingly powerful for the young pre- people that are, you know, a part of that, mm-hmm. uh, it helps us to recognize again through the lens of, you know, human utility, uh, but it, it allows folks to see that they are part of something that's bigger than them. And I think yeah. uh, whenever we can reclaim, uh, stories of nature and its role in our lives and hear those stories through the experiences of, of folks like these young people who are writing about it so authentic, authentically, and they're not mm-hmm. trying to convince anybody of anything, right? They're just writing about themselves and their trauma and they're processing through how nature, you know, has played a role in their healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anywho, these photographs are paired then with the writings of the students, and then they were uh, put on public exhibition tours, right? There's a gallery and they, these narratives would show up, you know, online and all over the country. They were down in DC and in national parks. Um, And I think that getting to read stories of people being in nature and changed Mm -hmm. by it and touched by it is a wonderful way to add to the collective discourse about how mm-hmm. nature is valuable beyond anything that, you know, can be quantified and commodified. So, right. um, yeah. So it, those kinds of, you know, community-based uh, narrative collection opportunities are, are a way to do that, to bring those stories to the public. Right. So, right. so just to mm-hmm. provide some different stories, right? Stories that aren't mm-hmm. in some way resource-based or like, mm-hmm. right. Or like service-based, but just right about the relationship with land. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, are there any particular, like that when you're thinking back about like that project, like were there particular stories that arose from that, that you thought were like, that are particular resonant for you? Like that, right. Like the, when you think about that, like that jump to the for your, your, your brain. Oh, there's so many um, individual stories. I worked yeah. there for almost five years. And so I read literally thousands of these um, reflections and, and stories from students. And I worked yeah. on um, a, a published book of their stories, but common themes that were in them, yeah. in particular, uh, the book that I worked on with the organization and the leaders of the program, mm. um, those that book was centered on underwater photography, which is an entire amazing, you know, wing under the surface that program is called. Um, and the power of being submerged in water has all of these healing restorative effects. Right. Um, but a common thread and a common theme in students reflections and their, the bios they'd write about themselves was, this idea of nature being bigger than, um, and I, students didn't often frame it in this way, but this idea that like nature is our ultimate house of worship, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is the thing that healed, healed me. This is the way that I saw myself as a part of something bigger. You know, I, I -hmm. saw something I can be in service to. And, um, those overarching themes of, you know, bigger than me, uh, place of healing, um, 
something that gives me hope was a regular common thread and really inspiring, you know, especially when we talk about things like climate change, you know, I talk about climate change communication all day, every day, and Mm -hmm. um, it can be kind of dark as one can imagine. And um, especially when you're reading hundreds of news articles um, about the impacts of climate change, which is what most of my research centers on. Mm. Um, and so it's, I often, I turn back to that book and I'll, I'll reread those young people's reflections and I'll just kind of reground myself in, oh, there is hope, right? Mm. Like there's hope in, um, there's hope in telling alternative stories and there's hope in, people's passion for and will to protect nature. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Here's a good spot to stop for now. To review, in this episode, Marceline Mosher discussed how the dominant narratives in the United States about sustainability and the environment have a tendency to treat nature as a commodity. We'll extend this discussion in the next episode of Just Sustainability and examine how Marceline thinks that we might challenge the current narratives that are leading us astray. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. (laughs) 